0: Matt is having the time of his life over here like he was born in the womb making perfect 60 (laughs) second copy. And welcome to the weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Dara Lind. With me is co-host Matt Iglesias. and uh, we were going to tape this episode early on Thursday because we thought that there was going to be so much immigration news that we couldn't wait to send all of it to you. And uh, I'm super glad we did not do that because on Thursday night it was reported that in a meeting in which he appears to have shot down a deal that a bipartisan group of senators has been working on on immigration, Donald Trump. Uh, complained about the US taking people from quote shithole countries close quote and that has dominated the media cycle since then in the kind of way that the president's tendency to make ridiculous comments does but also when the president says the quiet part loud
1: yeah uh, which is a tendency that that he has well and it's I mean, I, I mean I, I, I'm 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 glad that this story came out. I'm, I'm glad we didn't miss it because also, I, m- my whole point was going to be that the sort of details that they're negotiating over and the ostensible sticking points and so on and so forth are, is of course important. I mean, it matters what what the policy is, but that like the thing you have to understand is that the core issue here is not really about the ins and outs of temporary protected status, but is about the president's desire to reshape or prevent from being reshaped the ethnic makeup of the United States. And that that he's... We, we know... I mean, it's it gets paradoxical when I'm talking about Trump and immigration because he's he's not a, a detailed policy guy on this subject or on any other subject. But immigration is clearly a topic that he has strong feelings on, which is different from healthcare or even, you know, surveillance. I mean, a million other things that happen where he says things that don't quite make sense. He, he has a real commitment here on an emotional level, on an intellectual level, even you would say. And it it comes through in these kinds of remarks. And it's a it's a like it's a big roadblock to a deal on this kind of thing. I mean, both because it's hard to translate into policy terms. Let's get rid of people from shithole countries. There was a, a New York Times report a couple weeks ago that he felt that everyone here from Haiti had AIDS, so we should get rid of them all. Um, the administration denied that at the time. I mean, I think it's it's clear that, that that's what he said, that that's what he, right. that's what he thinks. But that was,
0: again, in, that was in the context of him being mad that we had let so many people on legal immigrant visas into the U.S. You're right. It's not, it's not something that can be easily transmuted into, well, he just wants us to get the illegals
1: out. Right, right. I mean, exactly. And, and that's been, I would say, across 2017, I mean, we saw that with, with Trump, right? That in the, he always had some of these policy commitments around legal immigration in the campaign. But the the rhetoric, the, the rhetorical focus was on, you know, his opposition to amnesty bills, uh, the border wall, which, I mean, you can understand as a wall, but also clearly a, a symbol about illegal immigration and about control and security and about the sense on an emotional level, right? The, the the illegal immigration issue is in part simply about the sense that you want to have a situation of control. He would say, we've got to have borders in this country. And a, a sort of and it's a it's a common trope that, that you hear from people that if there is a non-zero number of people living without permission in the United States, that's equivalent to the country having no borders at all. And I I mean, I I don't think that's right, but that's sort of the, the feeling that it taps onto. But we've really moved in this DACA debate toward demands, I mean, actually a willingness to sort of give a pass to a certain number of people who came here illegally, if in exchange you can have a really big change to legal immigration.
0: That concept of control is super important. And I want to kind of put a pin in that because I think that you're describing accurately a worldview that has come out of the White House that sometimes has been voiced by Donald Trump, but that has not always been voiced by Donald Trump, right? Like if we had taped this on, on Wednesday after the Tuesday televised immigration meeting, we would be talking about A, how everybody in that meeting other than Donald Trump understood very well that Donald Trump had no idea what policy was being deliberated, but B, that Donald Trump appeared to be interested in getting a deal and didn't appear to to care terribly about the content of that deal. Both Tuesday and I think after the reports on Thursday, people like you and me who are not super committed to the question of what is Donald Trump's policy determinations are kind of, you know, taking the president's own words with a grain of salt. But the big question out of this immigration negotiation is and continues to be, and Thursday's meeting, while it was definitely, you know, a big reversal for the White House and a big setback, it's not necessarily the end of it. Literally, the senators who came up with that deal after the White House shut it down announced to the public that they had a deal and are now trying to see how many votes they have for it in Congress. So it's not like, you know, it's not like the fight is over. But the big question remains, Donald Trump clearly on some level wants to say he got a win. Yes. Donald Trump clearly on some level has these feelings that are easily tapped into about we shouldn't be letting people from bad countries into the United States. We know that Stephen Miller is tapping into the latter set of sentiments very hard. And like even Republicans have been grousing to reporters that Stephen Miller is the person who is trying to throw a wrench in these negotiations. We don't know who's on the other side, right? We don't know that there's anyone in the White House who's actually telling Donald Trump, look, if you want a deal, you're going to have to just say you got a win, even if you don't get literally everything that Stephen Miller wants. And that dynamic is not yet resolved right like it's not this president does not have the gene other politicians have where once they've said something that becomes public they feel the need to back it up right so um, let's let's
1: set reboot set set the stage for for the policy argument mm-hmm. for people I've been following right so you have the deferred action for childhood arrivals program um Obama administration rolls it out uh, years ago. It goes not as a subject of super hot controversy. Uh, Donald Trump comes in faced with a uh, threat of litigation from some of the more conservative state attorneys general. He cancels the program. Um, this creates sort of rolling bad consequences for the DACA recipients.
0: Right. And I mean, so he he what he does is he starts shutting the program down immediately with the program getting shut down over the course of six months and then turns around and says, I am giving Congress six months to fix it. Right,
1: because this is the critical thing. I mean, uh, Trump has reversed a lot of Obama-era things, just like hither and yon. And typically what he'll do is he'll say, I'm pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords because they are bad. Right. I just, like, fundamentally disagree with the policy objective that was there. We're going in a different direction. We had net neutrality regulations. I'm getting rid of them because they were a bad idea. He didn't say that about DACA, right? He did not come out and say, this protected 700,000 people from deportation. I think that was a mistake. I think we should round up as many of those people as possible and deport them. Right, He said he had legal qualms objections. He wanted Congress to work out a deal. He wanted he, he wanted legislation right, like grounded he didn't in even love. Say,
0: He didn't even make the legal qualms argument. He sent Jeff Sessions out to do that. And of course, you know, Sessions, that this was a big win for Sessions within the Trump administration, right. despite all the, you know, palace intrigue reporting about Trump not liking Sessions. But Trump sent Sessions out to be the bad guy and then got on Twitter and said the Dreamers are great people, we should
1: help them. Right. So so the, the rhetoric was—the signal to Congress was always a bill that helps the Dreamers is something that Trump will sign. Then it sort of quickly started dribbling out that it was like Trump was happy to sign a bill that helped Dreamers, but he wanted like a unspecified pound of flesh— On immigration issues as his price for it. And I think at first, after the uh, sort of botched uh, Chuck and Nancy meeting, it seemed like maybe he was open to a pretty easy deal, which was Democrats in the context of a government funding bill would kick up some money for some stuff related to the border, that there would be some... Quibbling as to whether or not that constituted a wall. Yeah, I mean, so I think like this is what this is what I
0: have been saying for months. A deal could easily look like, but I think it's worth saying that you know, a few weeks after the Chuck and Nancy meeting, after the Chuck and Nancy meeting, and then the White, you know, where they came out, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi came out saying the president has agreed to sign a bill just to legalize Dreamers. The White House said no, we didn't. Um, that at that point. Members of Congress in both parties, a lot of whom had like been mobilized right after the, you know, right after the president announced he was ending DACA to to come up with a bill so that they could have something ready in the next six months, said to the White House, we need to know what bill you will sign. Tell us what you need. And earlier to mid-October, the White House put out this several page wish list that was, you know, it said, this is our framework we're not saying that any of these are demands. We're not saying that any of these aren't demands, but like this is what we think is important. They and, wrote down
1: basically the entire Trump administration immigration policy yes, agenda. Yes, it was. It, and was did-
0: it was basically the RAISE Act that, that Trump has endorsed, that Tom Cotton and others have proposed, that Stephen Miller worked on, which would cut legal immigration in the, to the US in half over the next 10 years. Plus, massive amounts of border infrastructure investment, plus an overhaul of asylum laws, uh, which have kind of come under the rubric of border security, given how many people coming in now are Central American children and families seeking asylum, plus mandatory E-Verify, which is kind of the big rock on interior enforcement, especially if you're not going to legalize, you know, all of the 8 million unauthorized immigrants in the workforce. So it was no one but no one in Congress said, oh, this is a serious starting point. They right. kind of all pretended it didn't happen. And so that's kind of when it, it snapped back to, oh, well, clearly the White House isn't ready to come to the table yet. But when they do come to the table, they'll just be they'll just say we want a wall. That put Congress in the position of trying to, like, play a guessing game for a while, and that clearly stalled out negotiations. So in January—in December, they tried again and said to John Kelly, tell us what you want. John Kelly didn't respond. Stephen Miller did in January by literally resending that document, plus a $19 billion 10-year proposal for the wall. So, like, the assumption of what the White House will ultimately take has been based on this idea that their negotiations thus far had been in such obvious bad faith that if they ever wanted a deal, they were going to have to settle for something that they could just nominally call a win that didn't have any hard sticking points. Well, because, I mean, this is,
1: I mean, there's a sort of conceptual distinction, right, between, like, a negotiating effort and a poison pill effort, right? Right, And that's sort of what we keep, I would say, ambiguating, between in the in the Trump White House, right? That the Dreamers, the DACA, the fate of the Dreamers is important to Democrats. They would clearly give Trump something for help here, and Trump, in his consistent public statements, has always indicated that he is not averse to helping Dreamers. So, taking the situation at face value, it suggests that there should be a deal. And now, like, what deal? I mean, who knows, right? But it suggests that Trump has the opportunity to ask Democrats for something that they would not ordinarily do, but that they will do in order to deliver a win on the Dreamers to their constituents. And so it seems like what you would want for for Trump's perspective is some kind of a win for Trump. But then you get to the problem that Trump has never articulated, um... A real negotiating strategy, right? Uh, part of I, I I I love the book "Getting to Yes," a great book about about negotiations. And part of how you have a successful negotiation, uh, that they say in that book, and, and I think it's true, is you you discuss principles rather than discussing positions, right? So you would want to hear from the Trump White House something like, "Look, we understand these are sympathetic cases. We are happy to help them." But we don't want to do anything that increases unauthorized immigration on net. And we also don't want to do anything—we understand that we just have a disagreement about legal immigration, but we don't want to drastically increase the volume of legal immigration by low-skilled Latin American people— And so then you could say, OK, right? I mean, that's hazy, but like we can work something out. And it suggests some kind of border security measures so that you can say, OK, we're maybe going to encourage some more people to come, but also we're going to do offsetting discouragement. And it suggests something like the terms of the agreement that the senators worked out, which was to put – try to put some kind of restrictions on the amount of new people who can be sponsored as a result of this. And that's that's just where the Senate framework comes from. It comes from a place of trying to imagine a deal, right?
0: Exactly, and, and, then, and specifically, it comes from a place of trying to work backwards, not from principles, but from sound bites. Right. And, and and I don't mean sound bites in the like often for for politicians, principles and sound bites are interchangeable. But Donald Trump has seized on a couple of words that he really thinks are are you know mean bad things, and so. It's the, the Senate bill the Senate deal represents an attempt to work backward from what can we say stops this bad thing. So I we should probably like get in into yeah, the so, like policy. So can right we here. let's
1: let's yeah. let's let's take a break and then let's let's describe what was in this deal.
0: So I am typically not the kind of person who pays $50 for shirts, and usually I don't do that because I'm skeptical that a t shirt that costs $7 to make is worth $50, which is why I'm super pleased about Everlane because Everlane never requires you to overpay for the quality clothes that they make. They only make premium essentials. They're using the finest materials, and they don't use traditional markups to inflate the cost of the clothing. Instead, they're telling you their real costs. So you know you're not overpaying. You know that the money that you're spending is going to the quality materials that they use and the ethical factories that they work with. They're radically transparent about every step in their process. And because they're selling directly, they don't need to charge you as much as other retailers. Their prices are 30 to fifty percent lower than traditional retailers. So, bottom line: they look better, they cost less, they last longer, they're super comfortable, they're simple, stylish, they're made from quality materials. I am a big fan of their crew t-shirts. I'm also looking at some of their denim options. I would, I have my eye on the boyfriend jeans. If you are also in the, in the market for timeless essentials, highly recommended. They're no frills, just quality. And if you are in the market, you can go to everlane.com slash weeds and get free shipping on your first order. So that is everlane.com slash weeds, everlane.com slash weeds, free shipping, first order, no frills, excellent clothes.
1: Okay, so a bipartisan group of senators reached a deal. The deal did not meet with the White House's stamp of approval. That's what we've been talking about. Um, But like what, what was what was in the deal? What did it say?
0: So I think the way to understand this deal is that uh Trump has you know Trump has always has said or said soon after he announced an end to the DACA program, I want to help dreamers but we got to have the wall. Then after there was the attempted terrorist attack in New York in November, it became we want to help the dreamers but we got to have the wall. We got to end chain migration and we got to end the visa lottery. And so I think we have to kind of discuss what it's never been clear whether Trump understands how either of those things work. But in order to figure out, you know, the the senators in trying to figure out what could be done that would theoretically satisfy those demands, which have actually continued and were the, the kind of what the White House said was actually resolved in the Tuesday televised negotiating meeting was, oh, we've decided that we need to focus on DREAMers, the wall, chain migration, and the lottery, which was what any of us who had been following the negotiations so far knew they were already focusing on. Um, but that's, you know, whatever they wanted to get a win out of it. So what I want to kind of talk about the visa lottery first, just because it's the relationship between what it actually is and what Trump thinks it is, is a little more straightforward. Um that's the, there's a way, it's called the diversity visa. There are 50,000 visas a year available to people who come from countries that the U.S. doesn't allow a lot of people, doesn't typically have a lot of immigrants from. And so these visas are allocated by, if you meet certain requirements, you can just sign, you can put your name in. They draw 50,000, you know, names based in part on you know, country's representation out of a hat, essentially. And then they say, hey, you've been given the opportunity to apply to come to the U.S. You now have to go through all the vetting steps that we let that we force everyone else to come through. But where otherwise you would have literally no way to try to immigrate to the U.S., now you get to try to immigrate to the U.S. Right. So- I mean, this is uh,
1: critical just just to underline this, because Trump portrays this as if the lottery is the last step. Um, when right. in fact the lottery that- is the is the first step, right? Yeah. That that essentially what we're saying is is that if you are you know whatever you live in Malaysia, you don't have a close family connection to the United States, you don't qualify for any of the special work visas, you can enter the lottery and you win a chance to come to the United States of America. The lottery does not get you out of security vetting. Right, Right. it's like a and
0: it and it doesn't get you out of the typical like you have to prove that you won't be a public charge if you come to the United States, which means you have to prove that you won't cost us more in social services than you generate in income tax, basically.
1: Right, so it's it's a way of letting some people in outside the normal system of selection criteria, but it doesn't. It's not like a like a loophole in the basic screening process right. for immigrants. So right. anyway. And, and,
0: Trump, and the lottery portion of it is really what Trump appears to be fixated on, right? He's He has this idea, or at least he's said in speeches that he has this idea that countries deliberately select their worst people, throw them into this lottery, and then they just come to the U.S. So it's logical, you know, I and everyone else looked at that and went, oh, Donald Trump doesn't think that a lottery is a good way to have people selected to come to the United States. This... Bears some resemblance to what some Republicans have been saying for a while that this is kind of a waste of visa slots. Uh, Even Democrats were willing to get rid of the diversity visa lottery in the 2013 comprehensive immigration bill. There might be a deal here. And so on the diversity visa, what the Senate Deal that was reached this week proposes is that there will no longer be a lottery, but those 500, fifty thousand visas a year will still be given out. It won't reduce overall legal immigration. Uh, who they'll instead go to is there will be some slots that'll be reserved for people coming to the U.S. from underrepresented countries. So it won't say you know these the any country that doesn't already have a lot of people in the U.S. You're you know, right. just out of luck, uh, which addresses the concerns that the Pro- Congressional Black Caucus has So you particular. keep the diversity, right. but
1: you get rid of the lot.
0: Right, right. And, you know, the the reason that this is a CBC issue is because African countries are big beneficiaries of the diversity visa lottery because they haven't always had easy ways to get to the U.S. by other means. Um, and the rest of those slots, the, the 50,000 slots that get freed up by getting rid of the lottery, would go to people who are currently in the U.S., who have been in the U.S. for years on temporary protected status, which is the program that Trump, the Trump administration has been kind of winding down for various countries, uh, including most recently El Salvador, which has 260,000 people who have been in the U.S. for 17 plus years after a 2001 earthquake uh, that... The Trump administration has said, well, it's supposed to be temporary. This has been too long. The country is better now. You should go home. The Senate, the group of senators working on this deal said, well, what if we agree that temporary protected status wasn't the right way to do this? But these people have been in the U.S. They haven't been able to apply for green cards because you can't apply for a green card just through having TPS. So we'll make them able to apply for green cards. They've been here 17 years. They should stay. So... This is where we get back to the shitholes thing, right? right? Because it subsequent reporting has made it clear that this was the point in the meeting about the bipartisan Senate deal where Donald Trump, you know, kind of lost his lost his shit. Um, and so reporting by Jake Tapper Friday morning has kind of clarified that what happened was. The senators were running through the list of countries that had temporary protected status, and they got to Haiti. And Trump said, why do we need more Haitians in the country? Take them out. Uh, Which is not—it's not more Haitians because they're already in the U.S., but— whatever. And then when they were discussing the fact that while the diversity visa lottery would be killed, there would still be these diversity considerations in, you know, this thing that was some of these visas that were being given out, and they mentioned African countries, he rejected the idea that we would take anyone from African, from these African countries, because he said they're shithole countries. So that's kind of, that's the, context in which Donald Trump said shithole countries. And it gives us a very different lens to see what his problem with the visa lottery was, because it doesn't appear that his problem was the lottery at all. It Or maybe that was also a problem, but it appears that Donald Trump also has a notion with the idea of taking immigrants from African countries.
1: And, and this is where, I mean, this is again where principles versus positions makes a difference, right? Because the problem with taking the lottery, the position Trump, articulated was consistent with the proposal that was in this deal. Yes. But it turns out that Trump's principle is that he does not favor immigration to the United States from Africa, right? Because the previous understanding had been the CBC likes the visa, the diversity visa lottery because it allows for Africans to immigrate to the United States, and Trump doesn't like it because he doesn't like the, randomness. the lottery, Right. So they reached an accord that met both people's principles if the actual principle is black people are bad, then there's no reconciliation that you're going to reach and it's the same thing with the Haitians, right where they were trying to do something where they were saying, okay we are going to answer the objection that this is a misuse of temporary protected status, but we are going to meet the objection uh, the the goal of helping Haitians, right But if the actual objection to TPS for Haitians is that they're Haitian, rather than that they're on TPS, then there's no form of helping Haitians that that is acceptable. I think that this is also relevant when you think about uh, the Raise Act that's been put on the table, because the Raise Act itself has a few big moving parts, right? I mean, one is a switch of the sort of basis of how you get a visa. The other is cutting the number of visas in half. A natural thing for like a policy wonk person to say is that like, okay, Tom Cotton has this vision for changing how immigration works. But a lot of people, myself included, think that he just underrates how valuable immigration is to the United States. So we should work for something that's along the lines of this system, but keep the total number of visas, uh, excuse me, uh, much higher. It turns out if you look at the profile of African immigrants to the United States, um, they are more highly educated than the average immigrant. They're, in fact, more highly educated than native-born Americans. Uh, They have less English proficiency than native-born Americans, but more English proficiency than uh, non-native Africans. Uh, And they're younger than the immigrant population as a whole. Um, So younger English-speaking, highly educated immigrants is actually who the Raise Act selects uh, so the implication is is that if you did the Raise Act but without the cutting legal immigration flows in half, you're going to end up with more immigrants from Africa, not fewer. Um, and so, if your policy goal is to reduce immigration from Africa, which it sounds like it's what Donald Trump wants to do, then like that's a non-starter, right? And, and to an extent, I mean, I don't want to say we're wasting time. It's it's always worth talking about these options, but. When you understand the basic objective as grounded in race and ethnicity it means that these specific proposals mean something very different from what you you had thought, right? There is no way to reconcile uh, humanitarian sympathy with Haitians or a skills-based assessment of who is likely to assist the American labor market with the goal of just keeping Black people writ large out of the United States of America. Like, those are much more fundamentally at odds than— some of the kind of legalistic concerns that have been officially put forward by the Trump administration?
0: So I think that there is another kind of root disagreement here, and that's the question, you know, the the, the question of top-line immigration numbers that you're talking about, whether we are going to have fewer immigrants coming into the U.S. or whether we're going to have the same number of immigrants coming into the U.S. but select them differently. And this is where I think the Trump administration has been most disingenuous um, because usually the problem the problem with talking about getting rid of the diversity visa has never been, well, there are a lot of people who are super invested in the way this works right now. Like, by definition, there aren't huge political constituencies for people from countries that don't send a lot of people to the United States. The question has always been, what, what do you replace it with and do you replace it with anything at all? Because Politicians are generally very loath to expand the number of slots available for people to come to the United States without any offsets, but people have different ideas about what kinds of people should be more easily allowed to come to the country. So once you get rid of a program like the diversity visa lottery that, you know, quote unquote, frees up these visas, which is kind of why, you know, which is why you see that solution being worked out in the, in the Senate deal. It's become
1: this, like, but, policy sinkhole for years, yes, right, yes. where nobody is standing around saying, like, I love this program exactly as it exists, but it's everyone's idea. If, if anyone has some notion of, like, I want to get some visas for this purpose, yeah. the proposed offset is always cut down or eliminate diversity yeah. visas, but then that means that everyone who has something else that they would like to do with those visas has an incentive to yes. block the change. So this thing, I mean, the origins of the diversity visa program are funny, but yeah. no longer no, nobody nobody is really for it, but they are often against changing.
0: Right, it. exactly. And and that gets even more complicated when you talk about um changing the way family-based visas are allocated, which is kind of the other question that is that is at odds in this negotiation, but the thing is that there are people who want to get rid of the diversity visa program and not replace it with anything because they want fewer immigrants to the United States. This is a much more contentious, you know, it's the idea that everybody in the U.S. supports legal immigration has been proven pretty conclusively over the last couple of years not true. And there really is a segment of the Republican base that just wants fewer immigrants. So, the thing that I think has been kind of underrated in the reporting of yesterday's meeting is that Dick Durbin and Lindsey Graham went into this meeting with Trump thinking they were meeting with Trump, and instead they were meeting with Trump and Bob Goodlad of the House— and Tom Cotton of the Senate, and those two are big immigration hardliners. And so it became clear that people had Trump's ear who were less amenable to a deal than they thought he was going to be. And in particular, you know, Cotton in particular has been the biggest person saying, we need fewer legal immigrants coming into the U.S. So when Trump says we don't need more Haitians, we don't need more people from shithole countries, He's wrong on the policy in both regards, right? Like by definition the Senate bill is Senate deal isn't talking about having any more people, it's about reallocating. But if he's if he means we don't we don't ha- we don't want to have any more people coming in, like we have enough, we don't need any more, that's a very different stance and it's obviously a much harder stance to reconcile with anything that Congress would be able to get to a deal on. That gets even worse when you're talking about the question of more Haitian's. And this is what I think really upsets me personally about the way the Trump administration has dealt with this. Because in the call, the press call Monday when they announced that they were ending temporary protected status for El Salvador, uh, senior administration officials said the exact same thing that they said when they announced they were ending TPS for Haiti, when they were ending TPS for Nicaragua. Uh, they said, we— this is a temporary program. It's not our <laughs> fault that this temporary program has been misused. We are We need Congress to pass a permanent solution for these people if a permanent solution is going to happen. They weren't saying Congress needs to give these people green cards, but they were saying c- it's Congress's job to find a permanent solution. Congress found a permanent solution, and Donald Trump is not only rejecting the permanent solution, but is saying we don't need more Haitians coming into this country as if— the haitian's who would be given green cards under this deal are people who have lived aren't people who have lived in the us for 8 years as if the people who would be the salvadorans who would be given green cards under this deal aren't people who have lived in the us for 17 to 20 years it's at, at times the administration's view has been not only that there should be fewer people coming into the country from abroad but it has been this insistent this insistence on treating people who are here who have been here who are living here as if they are just coming into the US and pretending that they can decide who gets to stay and who gets to go, who has to go as easily as if they were just selecting people from outside, that the years you've put into the US don't matter, that your roots don't matter, that the fact that you've learned English and raised children, raised US citizen children doesn't matter. And it's It makes the fact that they talk about assimilation more than any previous administration in recent memory has talked about assimilation a joke. It means that they don't understand, that they don't actually care about the difference between immigrants who are contributing to American communities and quote-unquote bad hombres. And it makes it extremely difficult to take the principles that they're trying to espouse on immigration seriously as a matter of caring about the America that they say they care about.
1: And, and I mean, I I would apply this, too, to the, the, the criticism of the family migration system, mm-hmm. the, the so-called chain immigration. I mean, on the one hand, I don't want to say that this is something that should be off the table for discussion. There's a finite issuance of visas, and it's reasonable to talk about how you do that, at the same time, if you're talking about America first and American interests, I mean, the reason that a person gets preferential treatment in the immigration system for having close family ties to American citizens is that that's a way of taking the American citizen Interests into account, yes. right? I mean, yes, absolutely. You know, it, it matters more to people what happens to their dad than it matters to like corporation X who is trying to optimize for you know whatever they're filling some accountant vacancies, right? Like that. That is the idea of it, and the you know the dehumanizing tone and language of the the chain migration trope. It's based on the idea that the past cohorts of immigrants who are sponsoring new potential immigrants are themselves not authentically American. And so their interest in their family members is less valid than a longer settled person's taking an interest in their family members, right? I mean, I I did, you know, philosophy or whatever in school. I mean, this, this is always, like, a question in ethics, right? Like, like, how legitimate is it to care more about your cousin than, like, a completely random person? But we just, we all the time accept that, like, people are going to care more about the people who are close to them. And, like, part of evaluating American interests is that, you know the people who are present in america have a take a special interest in their relatives who are not present not everybody is coming to the united states under the current system under any feasible system i mean it's not it's not like per se absurd to say we need to give fewer visas to close relatives of relatively recent immigrants to the united states and more visas to people who meet some kind of urgent uh, economic policy need but the depiction I mean, you'd literally see it in their little graphics, right? It's like the, the presumption is that you don't actually become an American right. by immigrating here, by applying for naturalization, right? That you remain ineradicably foreign. And so that by pulling more foreigners in, it's like a sneaky foreign invasion. Yeah, of I, d- the I, country, really, right? I really like, want to underline the,
0: that. Like when. When President Trump says chain migration, it is not clear what he means. When p- immigration, you know, hawks who actually care about policy talk about chain migration, they're talking in specific about the lower preference family visas. That you know, it's it's much there are visas more easily allocated to you know your spouse when you when you immigrate to minor children. Um, it then kind of as the relationship gets more. You know, more distinct, the the preferences go down. And they're talking in particular about adult children and uh, siblings, because in both of those cases, if you have a system where you can, you know, you can bring over your married adult child, they have a spouse who can then bring over their parents and their siblings. And that's, that's kind of that's the, the chain and chain, chain migration, right? Those lower preferences only kick in once you're a US citizen. So, yeah, there's, I mean, I think that philosophically, there is absolutely, and a question to be raised about if you are coming to the U.S., you know, it probably improves your quality of life and your ability to be settled in the U.S. to have your spouse and minor children. It probably improves your quality of life to have your parents. At you know, does it, does it really matter that you can have all of your adult children here? Does it really matter that you can have all of your siblings here? I think that philosophically those are questions, but it's worth noting that those are questions that only matter once you have the only thing that the U.S. government gives you to say you're an American. Right. right, like you're a U.S. citizen, that makes you every bit as American as anybody else, as far as you know, either the law or any non-racist view of Americanness is concerned.
1: Right, e- exactly. Right. So, I mean, the issue is, like, there there is a trade-off being proposed in terms of a family-based or an economic-based migration, but either way, you are talking about. American citizens' interests, right? And I think it's not— Like, we all the time ask some American citizens to sacrifice some kinds of interests for the good of other American citizens, but they are discussing this as if an American citizen trying to sponsor a visa for a relative is not really an American. Right. You know, and I I don't, I don't want to, like, hinge the whole argument about everything just on this point, but it is— useful. When the mask slips around the shitholes, it's useful to get this going because it's been driving me crazy throughout the year that there's a refusal. I don't want to say refuse. I think there's been a reluctance to accept that the proposals coming forward from Trump and the Trump zone on immigration are closely linked to Trump's habit of making, I guess what they typically will call in the press, racially charged remarks about this or that. You know, like this is a guy who, I think based on surveys and stuff, we can see he's not alone. A lot of white people in the United States are not comfortable with the idea that the United States is becoming a majority non-white country, and they would like immigration policy to reflect their preferences on that score. Um, It's certainly not a new idea that American immigration policy should be race conscious, right? I mean, the the Chinese Exclusion Act, I think it has there in the name that there's something about Chinese people there rather than about the labor market writ large. Right. I mean, the
0: American immigration system cared about what country you were coming from more than anything else from you know 1880 to 1965 from 1965 on it has cared ostensibly about your ties to the US through you know family or work or humanitarian considerations more than your the country you're coming from although it there are kind of some asterisks there so really we're talking about 85 years versus 52 years it's uh, historically the not being racially conscious is the exception wait and i think you know and i think it's
1: fair to say that the was in 1962 65 65 that that law changed the ethnic balance of immigration right. more than i think people at the time may have fully appreciated what was happening right uh, that, that yeah. there was a
0: yeah, I think that I think it was something that I don't think that it was the uh, an unintended consequence in the way we typically think of unintended policy consequences. I think that uh there was an understanding that the old that the existing system was unforgivably racist. Right. And I think that the fa- the kind of changes that have occurred were like Asian immigration to the U.S. was basically not a thing pre sixty right. five. Um, African immigration, has, you know, has been kind of slowly increasing uh, as a result of that law. But that's this is also what makes the chain migration debate politically fraught, right? And I think that the other reason why talking about the moments where the mask slips is that the argument for retaining the family-based immigration system exactly as it is, is less an argument about it is really important for siblings of United States citizens to have preference in coming than it is Asian Americans in particular feel that there were 85 years where they were banned from coming to the U.S. and that they've been able to put down roots in America in large part because of this family-based immigration system. It is something that they that is regarded as an important way that the United States has made up for a historic wrong, historical right. wrong. So that's kind of moments like where it becomes apparent that the president of the United States has racist views and that those are informing his opinion of the immigration system are the kind of thing that make it extremely difficult for Democratic lawmakers to get on board with reducing the number of family-based visas because they understand that you know, that many of their constituents feel personally invested in that system as a way that has helped their communities, you know, put down roots in the U.S.
1: Right. And I mean, it's obviously also if you if you look at the, the timing, right, it's not a coincidence that 65 Immigration Act happens the same year as the Voting Rights Act and a year after the Civil Rights Act, right? I mean, this is a, a civil rights era measure that was taken to reverse decades of super-duper race-conscious immigration policy and try to make it, in some sense, racially neutral, uh, although different countries are still treated very differently under the current system. And in some ways, I think that the dissonance around this is where you get at just the question of, okay, do we need to sharply limit the quantity of immigration? Right. And this has been an interesting Trump era phenomenon. If you look at the Gallup polls, there has been as far back as they go, a large minority of the population, like a really large one, like 40 percent, you know, enough to have a political party's worth that has been saying we should have less immigration to the United States. But the political, the like overt argument in Congress has always been strictly about unauthorized immigration. Yep. Um at a time when there was a large volume of unauthorized immigration, cracking down on unauthorized immigration was a perfectly reasonable way to reduce the total volume of immigration. But something we've seen as unauthorized immigration has has slowed down and has reduced a lot in, in recent years is that that has – rather than that meeting the demand of restrictionists, it's accelerated Demand because the less unauthorized immigration there is, the harder it is to credibly promise that border security is going to reduce the amount of aggregate immigration, right? If you want to reduce immigration to the United States, you have to reduce legal immigration, and that's something that a lot of people have wanted to see for a, a long time and through in Donald Trump's inchoate way and in Tom Cotton's like much more I went to Harvard Law School and I know what I'm talking about way like this is what has bubbled to the top of the Republican Party policy agenda right but it's like the mass opinion I think as far as we can tell has been fairly constant but the like Actual congressional politics have become very, very, very different, right? Even like Mitt Romney in in 2012 was not saying anything bad about legal immigrants to the United States, um, but you know that's really changed now. The the Trump administration position is that lots of people, you know, some people who are here under TPS, like they are here legally, but he wants to yank their permission. Now they become part of. The unauthorized immigration problem because he has unauthorized them. Uh, whereas, you know, Bush and Obama were both kind of like a little loosey-goosey with it, right? I mean, they would they would give you permission and then say, well, there's no problem. You had permission. Uh right. and, and Trump, Trump wants to be stingy, right? He wants to like not have all these people from shithole countries in the United States and sees the legal, the the immigration law process as a way to constrain them.
0: Yeah, I think that the idea—the the point you're making, like, the Trump administration doesn't think of themselves as unauthorizing TPS holders. They think of themselves as, well, once your permission is revoked, you have to leave. That's just the way it works. And the kind of other thing that's got that's shifted subtly over the last 10, 15 years of the immigration debate is the valence that's been, been put on the idea of people settling in the U.S., right? right. If you think about the way that the you know, guest worker programs were described during Bush-era immigration reforms, there were concerns on both the right and the left that not only would guest worker programs do more to reduce American wages than just legalizing immigrants, but that you would create a class of people who didn't have ties to the U.S., who were just kind of coming here for a paycheck and then leaving, that that money wouldn't stay in the U.S., that those people wouldn't, you know, put down roots and adopt U.S., you know, American values and have any reason to love the flag. And that idea doesn't appear as much anymore. And what we have policy-wise is generally the harder it becomes to get to a country, the longer people are likely to stay. Because if you know that you, you won't be able to come back if you leave, you're not going to leave. So Legal immigration from countries like Mexico has actually become much more circular than it was a generation ago, while unauthorized immigration, you know, tends to result in people settling. TPS, because it was a matter of your country is not safe enough to go back to, has become a matter of people settling. You know, people certainly have left and gone back to Haiti or El Salvador during the time they've had TPS. um, But... You know, those are, those are the, by definition, the people who are still here after 17 years are the people who have built lives here. So the idea that those people don't have a claim to Americanness or aren't likely to become full Americans or can never become full Americans isn't something that you would have heard 10, 15 years ago when the emphasis was really on, well, we want people to adopt America fully. It's now this idea that the U.S. government can tell you whether or not you're American and you have no hope but to comply. So when the administration is turning a blind eye to the extremely likely fact that once it pulls TPS from 57,000 Haitians and 262,000 Salvadorans, that there are most, many of those are likely to stay in the U.S. as unauthorized immigrants. They're not going to pack up en masse. What they're doing there is they're undermining the the idea of assimilation but they're doing it by saying how long you've been here does not matter and that's something that isn't compatible with a culturalist view of what it means to be an american that isn't racialized but it is compatible with a culturalist view that is racialized
1: yeah and i and i think there's you know there's a fundamental sort of non pragmatism i mean because it's beyond the sort of specific interests of the people involved here, you know, if you just think from a America first, whatever perspective, right? The immigration system has the capacities that it has, right? I mean, you've talked about the backlog in the immigration courts. There's only so many ICE agents. There are a lot of undocumented people in the United States. From a just basic practical standpoint, you know that if you yank TPS from all these people from El Salvador, um, They mostly aren't going to pack their bags and leave. And the total volume of people that ICE is able to apprehend and put into deportation processes does not increase. And we also have, you know, lots of economic research that if you take people's legal status away, there are negative consequences for them for that. But there's also just very negative consequences for capital formation, right? Because like you can't. Operate a business legally. You can't. Um, you can't. If you have job skills, you can't use them to their maximum potential. So you're, you know, you're reducing the productivity of the American economy. You're reducing the level of investment. You are encouraging those people while they stay to exfiltrate whatever financial assets they may have to make uh, preparation for the eventuality that they may be forced to leave. So that's all just bad. It's it's all just net negatives for the American economy to no real purpose unless you just really think that it's bad to have Haitians in the United States of America uh, because it's not like zero of them will leave. Right? You know, yeah. you get if you if you really just profoundly think it's like really bad for there to be Haitians in the United States this will end up with fewer Haitians right. than, than, is- than you had previously but it's like In no other way, like, there are not many Haitians living in the Washington, D.C. area. This does not have super concrete impacts on the lives of me or people who live in in this neighborhood here. But, you know, I mean, lots of Salvadorans. But I mean, it's just, it's a net loss for the American economy and American labor market. But it lets you deport a certain number of people. It will intimidate out a certain number of other people. And it will make a symbolic claim about what America is and, and who we are all about, but it's just not, it's not in any way like putting the sort of concrete interests of the typical American first. It's putting a very ideological view of like what the nature of Americanness is first. And that's, I mean, it. It's what's significant and, and revelatory about, about shithole country.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I do just want to kind of make one last point, which is that what you're describing, Matt, is the theory of self-deportation. Right. Um, and, you know, the the idea that if you use many different avenues to make the lives of people who are here in the U.S. and do not have or have lost authorization, that they will leave. That's both an ideological Argument about that you know who should be in America and an empirical argument about what happens when you make people's lives right. miserable. And as an empirical argument, neither I don't think either of us would disagree that some number of people will in fact leave. But there isn't a lot of evidence that the volume of people you know that like you're going to get to half of the uh, the people whose lives you're making miserable are going to leave. The you know from the reporting I've done, I. Uh, Right after Trump got elected, it seems like there was a lot of talk about people kind of going back to their home countries, self-deporting, essentially. Um, And while there have been, you know, there have been some cases of that, it sounds like that talk is kind of on hold because people are seeing that they're, you know, that ICE can't come to everybody's door every morning. The risk is elevated, but the risk is not so high that it's actually you know, forcing them to move, it's forcing them to change their behavior in other ways, and it's forcing them to live with this ambient anxiety. So the question for me is, if you think of this, you know, even if you grant that it would be a good idea to, without spending lots of money to deport people, shrink the population of people who you think shouldn't be here, what are the costs of that you're willing to bear to, unauthorized immigrants to their U.S. citizen children, to their communities, to the businesses that employ them, et cetera, et cetera, in order to get some unspecified and possibly small number of people.
1: To and you also have to—I mean, it's, it's worth understanding that because Trump keeps stuffing more people into the deportable mm-hmm. category, right? I mean, there are—if if DACA goes away in 2018, which looks, you know, plausible— um, that is adding more people to the deportable population at the, at than, the rate of like Then will day. be deported, right? Right. So that you are re- meaningfully reducing the odds that a non-DACA undocumented immigrant would be apprehended. And, and I mean, it depends. Yes. On, it depends on what ICE does. Uh, but they they keep with these TPS moves with DACA, yep. right? They they keep growing the denominator, yes, without doing anything particularly on the other side. And there's a there's reasons for that, and also I think they're not that bright in terms of their, their thinking about these things. But you know, part of the sort of converse theory of comprehensive immigration reform was that by legalizing the bulk of the unauthorized population, you make it much more realistic to either deport or self-deport the remainder because you're now talking about a small class of people. Trump keeps growing the universe of the deportable, which is bad for them. It makes it, I mean, it's its bad psychologically. its It has a lot of negative practical consequences because you need to safeguard yourself. But we don't see any reason to believe, like the, the total U.S. population did not drop suddenly in 2017. Like people did not flee en masse.
0: Yeah this gets really hard I think one one of the things that I've struggled with most over the last year um, as an immigration reporter is that I consider one of the most important functions that I serve to be giving people accurate information about the risk of deportation and that's been very difficult um partly because this administration isn't super transparent about whether they're prioritizing certain groups of people partly because they are being transparent that they're not prioritizing certain groups of people and it's up to individual ICE agents in the field, but also because it's really difficult to tell someone that they should feel less afraid. And it can be be really, you know, condescending for me as a white native-born U.S. citizen to do that. And there's a very fine line between not panicking people and, you know, by giving them kind of an accurate read on here's who is more likely to get apprehended right now, here's you know, what the, here's what it means that they're growing the number of people they can deport and not growing the resources allocated to deport them, and not recognizing that people who are used to a state of vulnerability, that that's, it's very difficult to keep, you know, to not have, to not be on high alert all the time. Even under Obama, you know, even in the late years of the Obama administration, all it took was one set of raids targeted at, Central American families who had come very recently, the those raids were in fact targeted, but everybody who was unauthorized was freaking out, uh, way beyond the number of people who were actually targeted, because it's a vulnerable situation to be in. And so I think that if the Trump administration's goal really is to shrink the number of unauthorized immigrants in the country, you're right. They're not that bright. They're growing the denominator. They're not growing the numerator. If you understand, as we've been saying, that they feel that certain types of people do not and should not have a claim to being Americans, forcing them to go through life understanding that this country does not want them and is trying to get them out is not necessarily a loss, right? That's not necessarily an unintended consequence. That is quite possibly the victory of an administration that has spent a lot of time telling people that they should be afraid.
1: And with that, I think we should let let you uh, and the listening public out of the the podcasting shithole. Um, thanks, uh, thanks, Dara. Uh, it's been a, a great discussion. Hope everyone has a, a happy uh, Martin Luther King uh, weekend. Uh, we are going to be back with with more weeds on Tuesday. So, thanks, thanks, everybody who's who's listening. Thanks, uh, Sonia Herrero, for producing this episode, and uh, we will see you next week.